Welcome to MMU, Murdered, Missing, Unsolved. Across this series of episodes, I talk to the first British journalist to arrive at the scene of what became the most infamous missing person case of a generation, Madeleine McCann. The McCanns had no idea what they were walking into, what holiday they were booking. From his base in southern Spain, I discussed the case with author John Clark, who guides us through his search for the monster at the dark heart of this tragic crime. I needed to understand what created this monster and how he got away with it. Madeleine McCann, the chief suspect. John, bring us to the summer of June 2020. Where are we in the story? We know we're in lockdown. Where are we in terms of our hunt to find out as much information as we can about Christian Bruckner? Well, Donald, yeah, it was exactly then in June 2020 that the police announced that they were looking for a certain Christian B who could have been involved in the disappearance of Madeleine McCann. They've suddenly, after, you know, 15 years or 14 years, however long it was, suddenly they've got someone concrete and it's not coming from England, it's coming from Germany. You know, I was stuck here in Spain and it was lockdown. And I mean, it was total lockdown and you couldn't travel unless you had very specific permission. You couldn't go anywhere. The first thing I did was contact the uh, news editor at the Mail on Sunday and said, look, I'm assuming you, you want someone over there. And he was like, yeah, we, we are going to try and send from the UK, but could you get over there? I'm like, well, you know, obviously I'll try. I'll try and get there. But it's on two, on two counts. It's difficult. One that I'm not even really meant to be traveling to the border is actually shut, believe it or not, between Portugal and Spain, which is only the fourth time in history. Thirdly, I haven't got a passport because my passport had been sent back to England to be renewed. And because it was lockdown and COVID, it was taking about three months and it still hadn't come back. I did have a photocopy of my old one, fortunately. I contacted Lawrence, my digital editor, and said, right, Lawrence, I'm picking you up in Seville and we're going to Portugal. He says, there's no way I can go. I'm not allowed out of the house. Lawrence, you're working for the Olive Press, mate. You're a journalist. We'll get you a letter from the Olive Press. We'll get a letter from the Mail on Sunday as well. We can cross this border. Sure enough, we got the, a letter from our newspaper here and we got uh, two letters from the Mail on Sunday saying we were working for them. And we actually needed them. I mean, they, they stopped us on the border. I'm not joking. We got to the border. There was nothing, not one car. I mean, this is the main border, the crossing on the Algarve onto the Costa de la Luz, the main crossing into Spain. And there was nobody there. There were just about 20 police. So we had to kind of get our press passes out. We got the letters out. And they kept us for a full hour, you know, on the border. It was touch and go. What was interesting about this intervention by the German police was that, one, it was a state intervention. Two, it was a very secure source. Throughout the whole Madeleine investigation, there's been sources, hints, suggestions, hints of new inquiries. But here was something on the record and secure in a major police force outside of England, outside of Portugal, saying they had a potential breakthrough in the case. And of course, the BKA are taken very seriously and they're, they're one of the top forces in Europe and obviously very you know serious operations. So there was nobody in the kind of maddie world, if you like, who wouldn't have taken this very seriously. And in fact, it was good to see that Operation Grange within an hour of this going out had also called a press conference in London and had also backed up the German findings and were also giving more information on it. What they were announcing was that they were in particular looking for two phone numbers that had been used on the night. So between 7.30 and 8 o'clock, a half an hour phone call in particular between two phone numbers. And they were appealing for information on who had those two phone numbers. And of course, they were also asking for information on two properties that were near Prada Luce, in particular the Yellow House and the Old Schoolhouse. And they were also looking for information on two vehicles, one the Jaguar, the dark Jaguar XJS, and the other one being this sort of yellow and white VW van. 
there was a lot of stuff for us journalists to kind of get our teeth into. It was very clear there were two places to go. One was Germany and one was Portugal. You're on this personal crusade to track down information about Christian Bruckner. And of course, you are now part of a press pack energised by, as all journalists are, trying to be first to the scoop. I think, Donald, it's interesting because you've got to remember that I'm now running a business here. So I've kind of moved up from being just a reporter to being an editor of a newspaper and then really a publisher of a, of a newspaper group. And I don't want it to sound amazing, like I'm some sort of Rupert Murdoch character. I'm not. But this one is close to my heart. I've done a lot on it. And I've done the Netflix documentary, Don't Forget, two years before. That had only relatively recently come out. I bought into this case. I I wanted to do this and I needed to be there. We got into the ballpark as quickly as possible. And I reckon, I mean, it was a hell of a thing getting across the border. We would have been there easily first had it not been for all these mishaps. But we, we did get there pretty much before anyone else. We kind of got there and we started asking around questions as it was pretty much dark. And everyone, the, the first thing everyone said is, oh no, the parents killed her. I'm like, you are joking. Have you seen the news? Yeah, we still don't believe it. Come off it, guys. I mean, for God's sake, it's come from the German police. It's come from the British police, this. You're still now saying that the McCanns did it. Yeah, well, pretty much, yeah. But hey, we were there in the right place in Pradeluche. And the next morning, we got up nice and early and we went to look for this so-called yellow house. And in fact, great. I mean, the Man on Sunday is a great paper. I mean, they're so organized and they had a whole team of about six people on this. And uh, James Mellor, who was running the show, had got a memo overnight, <laughs> detailed memo with about 15 points that we had to do and things we had to check. One of them was to find the yellow house. And we fortunately found that by about nine o'clock or, or even quarter to nine. Can you explain to the listeners the significance of the Yellow House. It was like a crow's nest, as I described it in the book. And it looks down on Pradeluche from this sort of lofty, raised hillside, I'd say about uh, 200 metres above Pradeluche, looking down. And it's only a kilometre outside of the resort, but has a perfect bird's eye view. It's a tiny little kind of, I would call it in Spanish, a cortijo. It's like a little kind of farmhouse run down, really only one bedroom, small garden around it. This is where Mr. Christian B had lived on and off for seven years. Let's obviously he was traveling around a lot as we know it became very clear that everyone was going to have this and and in fact it was quite funny around 10 o'clock Lawrence and I had been there we came some pictures and over the hill came a kind of cavalcade of cars the press pack arrives about eight cars each of them with you know a photographer and a, and a journalist and by then all the neighbours just sort of dived inside and hid we realised that it was time to move on and go and try and find fresh leads and find more information because what was clear was that he'd left the place in 2006 and he hadn't been living there when Maddie disappeared. And the police, by all accounts, didn't really know where he was living when Maddie went missing. They knew he was around the area, but they didn't know where. There was another house called the Old Farmhouse, which was lived in by a German woman who I've, I've just recently discovered died. She was a much older lady who had various dogs and he used to go there. And the story was that he was having a relationship with her. He was often seen going out into the sort of hinterland in the area around where this house is walking her dogs, going backwards and forwards. But again, the couple that lived in this house as an English couple and we knocked on their door. I mean, they couldn't have been more impolite. And they were just like, fuck off, basically. Leave us alone. Go away or we'll call the police. I'm like, really? Someone who might have snatched and murdered a little girl. You might be a little bit more helpful. We then went off and started digging around nearby. And when we got back to this little house, about half an hour later, they put a sign up saying, do not contact us. Do not ring the bell. We will call the police. So that was kind of a dead end as well, really. 
in the trajectory of how the story developed, we then moved down the road because we heard that Christian spent a lot of time with the kind of new age travelers and hippies in a little village called Barrow de Saint-Jean. So we thought, well, we'll zip up there. It's a remarkable place. If you've been to Glastonbury or Orchver, actually, in Spain, you go in and the first thing you see is a woman sitting on the floor playing a penny flute and then someone else selling trinkets. And then you get some guy with four dogs on strings and it's that kind of archetypal hippie settlement. Everybody was so hostile. We decided that this was where we needed to spend some time. And we um, got a hotel in Barao. While we were there, we then heard about how these so-called pizza parties were going on. All these sort of new age travellers were organising parties where you bought a, a ticket for a pizza. Because they were getting around the regulations, these COVID regulations, you could go to the party because you were allowed to go and have a pizza. And while you were there, they would then give you drugs and alcohol and you'd party into the early wee hours. This is the world that Christian B was drifting around. And of course, I think now, Donald, it's pretty much established, I certainly believe it, that he was dealing a lot of these drugs to these uh, these new ages and was buying and selling hashish and bringing in pills. And that was where he connected to that world. That's sort of where we were. We were kind of not really going anywhere fast. And then suddenly we got a brilliant tip off from London. That's where things really got exciting. You get a real sense that you're ploughing your own furrow, but obviously being supported by the team from London and of course, all your own contacts that you've nurtured over the years. But what was the nature of the tip-off from London? We got a tip-off from one of the journalists at the MOS that um, there was a woman who was a friend of Christian B's on Facebook. They'd somehow worked out that he had a Facebook page in the name of Holger, Holger Vansin, which means Holger, I'm crazy, or Holger the Madman. Amongst the friends on this Facebook page was an English uh, lady who lived in Albufera. The problem with Facebook is that you get a name, but you don't get an address. And so <laughs> by the time Lawrence and I looked at the Facebook, she'd also deleted her entire Facebook profile, as had her family. Clearly, someone in London, one of the journalists had obviously got in touch with her, and she freaked out. We thought, well, we better go to Albufera, because maybe that's where she lives. And while we were driving to Albufera, Lawrence was, was getting in touch with all these sort of expat groups. People were coming back going, oh, you heard of her or I know her, but don't know where she is. And we were just getting frustrating. And then suddenly, out of the blue, he got a message from someone called Petra in Germany, in Stuttgart, no less, who said she lives in Tunis or Foral. So we direct messaged her and started chatting to her on, on Facebook Messenger. And she'd seen the news by now. And she said Christian B was living up in that area quite a lot as well. So we're like, where the hell's Tunis? We looked on the map and it was this really weird little tiny village about 40 minutes inland. I remember arriving in this Tunis place. It's a weird little town right by a railway line and with its own railway station. Nothing nice about Tunis, really. I'm sorry if you live in Tunis, but there's nothing really special about it. We asked every bloody person we could find, every shop, every cafe. And bear in mind, this is a lockdown, so most things are shut. So we're kind of randomly knocking on doors and showing pictures of Christian. You know, Do you know this man? Do you know, have you seen this? This car, you know, going around. Nope, 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 nope. So that was frustrating. And by about sort of half nine, we were like, right, we need to go and find the next place, which was somewhere called Foral. And that was another sort of 10 minutes inland. We got in the car and Lawrence is, you know, he normally gets a nosebleed if he goes as far as Hampstead Heath. He's an urban dweller. We're driving in this dark lanes and, and Lawrence is really beginning to freak out. He's going, this is really, this is wrong. You know, we shouldn't be going here. These roads are scary. <laughs> He's getting really, and I'm like going, Lawrence, he goes, yeah, but this could be the road that Maddie was brought along. Well, yeah, I know, but your imagination's running away a bit. We are going right into the middle of this very dark, very sort of out the way rural area. It is weird. I'll give him that. And it is true that you could extrapolate that Maddie was taken there. And as it turns out, 
she may well have been. So we eventually get this village, Pharrell, and it's tiny. There's no signs. There's no centre. It's really just a sort of enclave of big houses with big gates. There was absolutely nothing there apart from one restaurant called O Pharrell. And we went into O Pharrell. Couldn't knock on doors. It's like 10 o'clock at night and there's no one around. So we went into the restaurant and sat down and thank God it had some food. It was open. We sat down. We thought, well, we need to start asking this owner. But he was in a really bad mood. So we thought, well, mm, maybe we'll wait till the he's in a better mood. And he wasn't. So we came back the next morning and when we rocked up, the bloody cafe was shut. Closed cafe and no decent coffee, obviously, is a, it's a purge against journalists. It was only made up by the fact that we eventually found the, the village president, a woman called Christine Chin, who was Australian, who just told us that it's like, this is a really weird place with weird people. Lots of strange things happen here. And I was like, okay. And do you recognize this VW van? She says, yeah, yeah, I've seen that around. That was here a lot. What about him? She said, oh, I don't recognize him. But it was quite clear that we were in the right place. I mean, there was this village. It was like the Stepford Wives. Every single house is sort of similar size. They're all expats and they've all got, there's a sort of centre where you've got all the post boxes and the names are all like Milford Havens and the Churchills. And, you know, one of the houses is called Hampton Court Palace. But what was interesting was there's no doubt that something very dark has gone on in this village and goes on in this village. And it was a sense of that. You just get this pervading sense of eeriness. And so Lawrence and I just did the classic gumshoe. We drove up and down and we knocked on every door we could come to and anyone who was around until around, I would say, about 11.30, we happened upon one of the very few houses where you could actually drive in and didn't have a big gate. It was amazing. Part of the car up and this little old lady came out and she was German and she's probably like early 80s. She's like, hello. And we're like, hi, um, we're just wondering if you've got any idea about um, this guy, Christian B. And she said, oh, you're Christian. John, that sounds like a cross between Newfoundland and Wales. I'll stop doing the German accent. But she basically said, look, yes, I've been watching the news. I've seen Christian on telly. It's definitely the Christian that was living here in the village. I'm like, really? And she says, yeah, he lived across the roads. He was living here on and off easily for years, at least two periods. It's the Christian B that they're looking for the police. She said, I straight away saw it and I straight away realised. Anyway, her husband at this point started shouting because we were outside the house. He said, well, you know, what are you doing? Obviously in German. And so I said, yeah, hi, we're journalists investigating this case. And he said, come in. So we were brought in and sat down. You couldn't meet a nicer couple. They just then said, I mean, it was just one of those moments when the case just opened up in front of us. And he started saying, look, he lived in this house across the road, this Villa Bianca. In that house lived a woman called Nicole who rented it. This Christian guy used to turn up in a leather jacket with a gun. She said that this Nicole used to look after young children who were orphans, who'd been abused, who came from Germany. One of them ran away, came back pregnant. She said that Christian B had been brought in to go and find this girl, this poor girl. And he said, she said it was like a really bad time in the village. It was horrible. There was lots of robberies going on, burglaries. She said at one point, Nicole had told her to carry mace around the village. She said, I was like 70s and I was being told to carry mace around a little village and a half an hour inland from the Algarve. And in the middle of this was Christian B. You had hit upon this golden nugget because every time you hit Christian B, if you get somebody that knew him closely, that was another step in the journey to be able to try and find out who this guy was. When things start to unravel and you find the information you need, it's obviously very exciting. And we realise now that we were really on to working out this guy's life and what he was doing and why he'd been there. 
Lawrence and I knew that we were a step ahead of everyone else. I mean, there was no other journalists in this village at all. No one else had been there. What was really interesting that Ingrid and Peter said, we've got a single policeman knocking our doors. Nobody. Part of my criticism of the Maddie McCann investigation is that there's been millions and millions poured into it by journalists and filmmakers and documentary makers. And there's been millions poured into it by the Portuguese police, by Interpol, by individual forces in the UK. We know 13 to 14 million, probably at this stage, by the Metropolitan Police. And here is a journalist knocking on the door and making inroads. We are doing the job that the Portuguese police should have been doing in 2007, which actually I think the British police should have been doing, given the amount of money that went into Operation Grange between 2007 or 2009 or 10 when it was set up, right the way through to present day. And then the German police, oddly, who have also been working on it, as we discovered since 2017, in fact, 2016, they haven't even been to this village. One wants to understand why this case hasn't been solved. It's kind of not hard. Here we are 13, 14 years afterwards, and the German police, professional expert, weren't doing basic door knocking. The Portuguese police were so far behind the curve, it's unbelievable. The Metropolitan Police, who were desperate to come on board and thought this would save them from the scandal with the Lawrence inquiry, the Daniel Morgan, the corruption. They thought this is our saving grace. This is our rescue. Even they couldn't do basic door knocking. Is it just ineptitude or is it incompetence? Either which way, there's no way freelance journalists knocking on the door should be hitting these marks ahead of them. I couldn't agree more. I find it to this day absolutely staggering that in this village, Christian Bruckner lived on and off for a number of years. And he then lived around the corner, in, as I discovered, in Barakal, where it's a little hamlet about five minutes away. He was living there on and off for years. His best friends were living in this village around the corner. In this village, you have what's called the Institute of Algarve, the Recondition of Children, IARPS, that brought German children in on a regular basis. And there'd been a scandal and they'd been closed down and all the money had been taken. Nobody thought this is a place we need to be focusing on. This place explains entirely everything you need to know about Christian B his livelihood and what he got up to. Here you are, ahead of the posse, 13 years on, and you're simply saying, if I'm here, why aren't the police here ahead of me? And I'm saying that there were so many clues there. Surely this is the place that the police should be going to. Surely these they must realise there's a link, there's connections here. So John, how did you develop the story from there? What was clear from what Peter and Ingrid said was that they believed there was child abuse going on in their village and they were not comfortable and not happy there. We realised that we obviously needed to go and knock on the door of this Philip Bianca. We didn't know who was going to be living there. In fact, Peter and Ingrid, they said, well, there's a, the owner of the house, I think, is back in there. She's Australian. Well, she's actually Portuguese, but she lived in Australia for years. A woman called Leah. We walk up to this house, which is about 400 metres up from Ingrid and Peter's house. And it looks from a distance quite privileged. As you imagine, that lovely uh, Arcadia, you know, the expats live, this sort of beautiful countryside surrounded with trees. And we thought, this looks quite nice. But then as you got closer, you realised that the paint was peeling, that the gate was rusty. And more than that, there were about 12 or 15 dogs running around, barking like mad. There was rubbish everywhere. There was cars up on bricks. We could not knock that. We were both, and I'm a fully grown man, and I've done this job for 20 years or 25 years. 
I was nervous. I was worried about knocking this door. I don't know, something about it that just gave me the creeps. And so we both said, look, let's just go and get a coffee and let's make a plan. We said, right, we're going to take this and we're going to stay, be very careful and have the car ready. So if we've got to leave quickly, we leave quickly. We weren't sure whether this was like run by some mafia gang that was running a child network. And we, we just didn't know. And you've been in this position yourself. You want to be prepared. We even got a camera crew filming it. Anyway, so we got there and we banged on this door and the dogs start going completely mad. And eventually a head pokes out and she says, what? And uh, so, hi, you know, wave through the, the gate. Can you come down? She's like, she, this woman sort of stumbles out in a dressing gown and wanders down. And the funniest sort of uh, Australian, she says, hey, what do you boys want? You know, in a ridiculous Australian accent. I couldn't believe it. And I was like, hi, we've actually come for, all the way from Spain. We're investigating the case of Madeleine McCann and Christian Bruckner. It was almost like this moment where she just wanted to unload. She'd obviously never been asked. You saw this sort of look on her face like, oh my God, I've got to tell you the whole story. And she just poured out her heart about what an awful time it had been and how she'd rented the house out. There was this crazy guy, Christian. Yeah, he came in and he had a gun on his hip, was always wearing a leather jacket. He was a real strange guy. So here you stumbled upon somebody giving you an intimate portrait of Christian Bruckner around the time when Maddie went missing, the company he was keeping, the clothes he was wearing, the gun on his hip, his demeanor, his activities and his movements. What more could she divulge? Well, she told us that Nicole was German and that she came from the same town that Bruckner actually came from, Würzburg. She said she had to get launch a legal case to get Nicole out of the house. Unbeknown to her, she was getting beaten so badly by her partner, Nicole. She actually left in the middle of the night. She was taken in a van back to Germany. Was this Christian? I mean, I don't know if Christian took her because Christian was clearly dating her at the time and living on and off in this house and would regularly bring his Winnebago van. We actually regularly brought his VW van, which was parked outside and quite often seen inside the house, as well as outside the restaurant up the road. When she finally got possession of her house again, having had Nicole evicted, she found drugs in the house. The house was in a terrible mess. She said they'd found spoons showing heroin. She'd found lumps of hash. I said, so what did you do with it? I mean, did you give it to the police? Did you contact police? And she said, no, no, I, I burnt it. So it's kind of a sense of, well, there's lots and lots of stuff going on here. Loads of clues. I said, have the police been? No. If police hadn't even been like about three months ago to her house to properly look. I mean, there'd been claims that Maddie could be buried in the garden of this house and they haven't been to have a proper look around it. What else did she have to say about his activities? She said she didn't know him that well. But he worked for a time at O'Farrell restaurant, as did Nicole. He's definitely involved in thefts and burglaries in the village and apparently was often offering fenced goods. In this Oferal restaurant, which is which is amazing, really, because apparently this is where the Russians were hanging out in this restaurant when this girl, 16-year-old girl, when in fact 15-year-old girl had arrived. I think, I'm not sure if she was 15 or 16, was actually taken away, went missing for 11 full days. And she'd been seen with three Russian guys in this restaurant, Oferal. She'd apparently vanished. And when she came back, because Christian Brooklyn apparently brought her back, which is all very weird. And she came back and she was pregnant. And this is what no one really knew. But suddenly there was a baby on the scene living in this house. And Nicole supposedly passed off as her child, but it was actually this girl, Lena's child. Anyway, I managed to, because they filed the police missing persons report, I managed to get the copy of that report from the local police station in Messine. 
this is what Lena and Ingrid and Peter said. This was a major scandal for the village, this young girl going missing. She turned up and she apparently had been kept in a house in a little village called Algoz, about 20 minutes away. And she'd gone with these Russians, one of whom was called Ivan. She said they were Ukrainian. She said they just, she just stayed in the house and she just cooked for them. She said, I didn't have sex with them. I've traced her in Germany and I've tried to talk to her about it. She won't talk. She, she doesn't want to say anything, but there's something so wrong about it. And when she came back, she had to go to a, a, a missing person's like return report, if you like. Typical Portuguese police. Who did they get to translate this report? So when she went to the police station to explain what had happened in this 11 days she'd gone missing. Who was translating the, the police report? Well, obviously, Nicole. It was a very short interview, about 15-minute interview. And Nicole pretty much said, look, she doesn't want to say anything. She doesn't say anything. Nothing happened. She's fine. She's fit and well. And the police didn't think to actually look any deeper, obviously, or investigate it. But what happened here was clearly a bit of a forerunner of, unfortunately, what happened in a much wider scope over the next few years. And I'm sure it's connected in some way to, to the missing Madeleine McCann. What do we know about how the German police have now investigated that particular part of Christian Buckner's story and his life? I discovered that Nicole has now been interviewed three times by the German police and is being treated as a fairly key witness in the case. Her own father, Dieter, I've spoken to, I've interviewed at length in Germany, in his house, is not talking to her anymore and is very concerned about what she was doing. And in fact, we got, without a doubt, one of the most sensational lines from the father of Nicole of this whole case so far, which was concerning the transportation of children in a hidden compartment in a Winnebago that Christian Bruckner owns. What was peculiar and particular about this Winnebago that raised the concerns of Dieter? Dieter was fairly forthcoming and fairly friendly and, of course, remembered Christian B. Well, because he'd actually come down to Portugal in 2007. He said around, he wasn't sure if it was in April or March, April, May, June. He couldn't, he just couldn't remember when it was, but he did remember that he'd met Christian Bruckner inside the front garden of this property Villa Bianca in Foral. And he remembered very well that he had this enormous Winnebago. This guy was personable and friendly. And in fact, when he told me later, he said that Christian was playing with his granddaughter on the lawn in front of the house. Apparently, he'd come in and use it and park up and he'd charge the electricity and he'd fill the water. He'd have a shower in the house. I mean, he was certainly having a relationship with Nicole. He's meeting the boyfriend of his uh, daughter for the first time, or a good friend anyway. And he said, the guy was just open. He said, I'm a drug dealer. I have a very special job. I move marijuana around, um, around Europe, basically. This conversation with Dieter is obviously crucial in your investigation into Christian Bruckner. I should probably read you the exact quote because it's it's so amazing. So he's recalling the conversation in the spring of 2007, around the time Maddie went missing. He said basically he'd gone in to look inside this van, which had a bedroom, a bathroom and a kitchen. He later said it had a very odd smell, which he later put down to marijuana. Anyway, he said, as I looked inside, I asked him, Herr Bruckner, what do you do in Portugal? What is your job? He told me, I work, I get money because I have a special business. I transport grass in my van, i.e. cannabis. I was surprised. I did not believe it exactly. But Bruckner told me again, I have 50 kilograms of grass and I transport it around Europe. Nobody can see it. Nobody can find it. I thought he was joking. He told me I can transport children, kids in this space, drugs and children. Nobody can find them. Nobody can catch you. 
10 minutes later, he added, I believe he kidnapped Maddie and brought her out of Portugal in this big van. At the time, I thought he was interested in my daughter. He was a bad boy. I felt as a father, my daughter was not safe with such a man. He then said, I want to kill Bruckner. My daughter was in danger at the time, as was her daughter, who was six, because he is a paedophile and a dangerous paedophile at that. To find out more about the case and what we've discussed in this episode, John Clark's book, My Search for Madeline, is available now. Murdered Missing Unsolved is presented by me, Donald McIntyre, and produced by Inherent Productions and Steve Langridge. Music is by Alex Sane, and additional audio production by John Franklin Audio. There's no suggestion that Nicole is complicit or had any knowledge of Christian Bruckner's sexual crimes.